Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you're here with us as we continue to discuss covenant and uh, God's covenants with the people as recorded in the Bible. My name's Cameron, very pleased to be here with you. Yeah, g'day. Ken here, also very happy to be here. And I'm Luke, and I'm moderately pleased to be here. <laughs> and I'm Lachlan, thoroughly pleased. Thoroughly pleased. <laughs> Got to get some variety in the adjectives. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're moderately pleased, Luke. I've always been told that, um, uh, what's the saying? Everything in moderation or moderation in everything? Something like that. Yeah, moderation's a virtue. Yeah, but moderation in everything. That's not very moderate. That's that's quite extreme, <laughs> isn't it? Surely it should be moderation in, in, in some in a things. moderate amount of things. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, well, let's jump into... Uh, we're going to move over to Exodus now. We've been in, in Genesis. We are not going to talk about the story of Joseph, which seems to me a pity, but the lesson skips over it. And we, we've got, you know, having spent half of this quarter on just the first book of the Bible. It is perhaps time that we that we move the way through. Uh, just before we, we leave Genesis, uh, there's some notable things that happen in the story of Joseph. Again, sibling rivalry is is front and center, even more so. Um, again, it's very clear that sibling rivalry and people picking favorites is, is not God's preferred mode of operation, although he, he makes use of the regrettable circumstances that emerge. And I, I want to make one thing, uh, point out one thing about the story of Joseph, which is quite different to the other two. Uh, who is the preferred child? It's Joseph. Who is the child of promise? Who is the, who is the ancestor of Christ? Mm. It's Judah, isn't it? It's Judah. Oh, it's who's Benjamin. The, it's Judah. Mm. Who's, who's the villain? Oh, really? Because he's, he, li- um... he's the line of Judah. Well, uh, Judah doesn't feature in all that positive a light for quite some chunks of that story, Ken. I I think this is maybe a good point to refer back to our previous episode and draw a distinction between being chosen by God and being the favorite of your parents, because those two things are not the same thing, even though in the case of Joseph, they coincided. Mm. And And the point is that that Joseph was used by God. Yes. And Judah, Judah is used by God at the end of the story. Judah, Judah places himself. He becomes a type of Christ. He offers himself mm. uh, on behalf mm. of his brother. That's his so, big redemption so arc. It, it is. It, well, yet again, it seems that this is not a story which is neatly divisible into the good people and the bad people. Mm, mm. Mm. Because Joseph himself and, is a type of Christ, he goes down into the dungeon, yes. and, uh, and uh, yeah. it's his. He he, he is a redeemer Be- before and a he has and that Ken, experience. Ken, when is you know all of that experience? He's he's a bit insufferable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he is. He is. Uh, Ken, not only does he go go down to the dungeon, he's sold for for pieces of silver. Mm, goes mm, down true. into the dungeon where he meets two wrongdoers. One mm. one of whom he promises life, and the other death. Mm, mm, um, mm. And then when he leaves the dungeon, he, he leaves his clothes behind. There's, there's, huh. there's heaps of things you could say about about Joseph being a type of Christ. But Judah is also in his way a type of Christ. I think that we 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 rush, and I think it's it's fairly clear, or it's become more clear to me as I've read Genesis and read what other people have said about it, is that one of the points of the story is that the world is not divided 
into mm. the mm. into the good people and the bad you know the good followers of God and the bad pagans and to the good son mm. and the bad son that's that's not the way the world is divided and the story seems to be told to exaggerate that point the, the other the other thing is the body of Joseph his bones at least uh, were taken to the promised land mm. um, so, well, let's let's move anyway. into Exodus then, Ken. Thank you. Thanks for that segue. Locke, do you want to kick us off with, uh, you know, God's covenant is now no longer being, uh, you know, given to or made with. Do you give a covenant to someone, Ken, or do you make a covenant? You make a covenant with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, it's not being made with an individual. It's being made with a whole nation. Yeah. So the I think that we should turn and look at Exodus nineteen, uh, which is which is after the the story of the exodus at least the bits of it centered on egypt and it's at mount sinai but just before we get to exodus 19 there's a fascinating double use of the word covenant in genesis in exodus 6 i'll just read the first couple of verses of exodus 6 god spoke to moses and said to him i am the lord i appeared to abraham to isaac and to jacob as god almighty but by my name the lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Israelites, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So I was fascinated reading this again in preparation for this recording, that the covenant is one of the reasons God gives for the Exodus. He says, He says, I have heard their I have heard their groaning, and I have remembered my covenant. And it's interesting to look at the element of the, the covenant that he uh, remembered and renewed with the Israelites. If you go to verse eight, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So, mm. so it's that element. It's the giving of the land as a possession, which had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's that which mm. he is now going to fulfil through the the Israelites. I wonder what it is. I would love to know what it is. About about the addition of the identification of God as the Lord to the Israelites that distinguishes his nature and character and perhaps even the covenant from Hmm. his interaction with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's it is bigger than that as well, Ken. It's a really good point. Remember in the burning bush, which was Exodus three. God appears to Moses, and that's where God says, I am who I am. Mm. When when Moses says, what will I say when they ask me, what is his name? Mm. And so, actually, this is a bit of a theme here in the early chapters of Exodus. God is establishing his identity, or if you like, re-establishing his identity. Well, no, I think he's expanding and his identity. Names are important. Because he specifically yeah. said, I did not, I was not known by that name previously. I am now mm. to be known uh, by this name. That is, as I understand it, you are to see me with have, as having this new nature, this additional characteristic. Mm. No, I like that very much. Yeah. 
Um, and Cam, just in passing, this is why we have to skip over the story of Joseph, because God refers to appearing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've covered those in recent weeks, but God doesn't refer specifically to Joseph, so that's why we've had to move past. Yep. Look, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because I'm completely distracted now. I've been looking at, at God's regrettable memory, and I'm back in Genesis, and it seems that we're never going to leave this book because um, for some reason we keep coming back to it. Uh, almost as if that's what it's designed for. Um, we, I'm back in Genesis 9, and God seems to be one of these persons who, who has a bad memory, but knows he has a bad memory. Because in Genesis 9, verse 13, he's making a covenant with Noah, and he says, I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. So I, mean, I've, I, was at, I roomed at college in Watson Hall with someone um, and we were going on a road trip and we had to remember something essential and a phone charges or something. And I said, I said to him, I said, Don't, we can't forget those phone charges. He said, yes, got out of bed and balanced his toothbrush on top of the door handle. And... <laughs> I was I was bemused by this, and I I asked him why. He said, "Well, now I can't leave the door without without disturbing the toothbrush, and I will remember the phone charges." And it, it's a very good trick to like to do, and uh, lean something against the door or something odd or unusual to jog your memory. And that's obviously what the rainbow's for. Um, well, two reactions to that, Cam. One is that um, I admit I do something very similar when I have food in the fridge to take for lunch the next day. I'll hang my uh, shirt on the fridge door such that I can't get dressed for work without being reminded that there's something in the fridge. Works very well. I do wonder, though, surely an, a, an omniscient being of eternal existence doesn't need memory aids. So if I can be permitted to extend the, the, the comments in jest here one step further, it, it seems, Luke, that he does need memory aids because... Surely he could have remembered his covenant to the Israelites before their situation in Egypt got so dire. Well, quite. Yes, and, and I'm I'm looking here, and I'm I'm now a bit further through through Genesis, and and uh, Rebecca doesn't fall pregnant until Isaac prays. Um, God seems to wait for Isaac to pray, and he gets reminded, and I then mean, he says, "Oh, oh. Un- unless of course we're looking we're looking at." Uh, the, we're looking through the eyes of a narrator who maybe is using certain language or has a certain understanding that doesn't extend beyond the idea that God needs to be remembered or because people need to be remembered or this is the way that thinking works. Mm. Um, and also that the prayer is meaningful, that the the the... the it's, it's always after cries go up to God that God then responds. Um, so if, if it was if God doesn't need to be told or if or, or to put it another way, if we don't need to pray, then prayer is not a meaningful act. and prayer is obviously a meaningful act. Therefore it must be this way. A train of thought something like that. Uh, is is what I can imagine the authors of of Exodus sort of following. It does raise very interesting questions about what we mean 
by the omniscience of God. And it may well be that he can know whatever he wants to know, but he doesn't necessarily choose to know everything. In, a, in other words, his omniscience works very much like the internet. Could use it to learn all sorts of useful things, mostly just watches videos of cats. <laughs> Well, well, Ken, I've got a, um, I'm not omniscient, even in the maths classroom, but I do know more than my students. Uh, and when I'm teaching them a topic at the moment, and there's one mistake that really gets me down because it's so made so frequently. And it is my practice this year in teaching the topic that I make the mistake every time that I do an example on the board, I make this one mistake, and then pause and wait to be corrected. <laughs> and and after about the fiftieth time, they're finally catching on, and they'll they'll tell me that that needs to be minus instead of positive. But, so maybe there's some value in it. I I I've just quickly turned to a concordance. God does have a bad memory. If you look at Jeremiah thirty one thirty four, it's worth looking at. Um, it says that God will remember their sins no more. Mm. Mm. And there are things that we also so, choose within our realm of possible and capable knowledge, there are things that we choose uh, not to remember. And indeed, there are things that we outsource our memory to. Um, uh, so, Like our wife. Well, well like your wife or your iPhone. Um, just, uh, just pause on that thought for a minute because that strikes me as... No, actually, Ken, I'm going to rewind. It's not our wife, it's our wives. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for clarifying that, Ken. That's the wrong. The S was needed there. Coming, coming back to that verse, Cam, that strikes me as an incredible verse. The concept that is being described there is that a, a being of, let's say, infinite knowledge, for our benefit, chooses mm. to forget something, to unknow something, to not know something that he could know for us. Yeah. Do you know, um, I... I uh, and uh, I heard a story recently. Uh, what was it? It was a story about uh, someone going up to their teacher and saying, uh, do you remember me? And the teacher said, no. He said, I don't. He said, there was a really formative moment. There was a, there was a boy at school who had a new watch and um, I took it out of his pocket, of his coat when he wasn't looking. And he, he noticed it was missing and it was in my coat pocket. And you were the teacher of the class and the, the student came to you and said, someone's taken my watch. And so the class was stopped. He asked, could, could someone own up to the watch? No one owned up. And he, he said, I was, I was um, terrified because this watch was in my, in my um, pocket. And uh, you told all the class members to stand in a line and to shut their eyes. And you went down the line and you, you patted pockets and I was just quaking in my boots at this point. You came to me and you patted my pocket, you found the watch and you took it out. And then you continued down the line to the end of the line and told everyone to sit down and um, announced that the watch had been found and nothing else was ever heard of it. He said it was a really formative moment. Uh, uh, and and it, for me, a real pivotal moment in in a resolution not, not to steal. He said, I'm surprised you, you don't remember it. And the teacher said, well, I remember the incident very well, but I don't remember you because as I was patting pockets, my eyes were also closed. <laughs> we we are also extolled to remember lock in psalms i've got a couple of references here on my bed i remember you um the psalmist says to the god remember O lord your great mercy 
Perhaps it's just an idiom, a figure of speech. Yeah. I mean, there certainly is in that phrase, because it, it comes up here in Exodus, I have heard their cry and I have remembered my covenant. The hearing of the cry was also a theme rich in Genesis. Um, Abel's blood cried out from the ground to God. That's what God says when he's mm. speaking with Cain. Um, the God God comes in the story of Hagar and Ishmael in the in the desert. And we talked about that in recent episodes. Hagar ends up declaring that God is the God who hears. He hears the cry. And it, it continues through, throughout. It's a very rich theme. And so, so too with this covenant. And what's fascinating in Exodus is the covenant features there in the, if you like, the preamble to the Exodus, sort of the motivation a bit. And then there's the story of the Exodus and there's the plagues and there's the dry crossing through the water and there's the manna there's all sorts of things and then in chapter 19 of exodus um starting from the beginning on the third new moon after the people of israel had gone out of the land of egypt on that day they came into the wilderness of sinai they set out from rephidim and came into the wilderness of sinai and they encamped in the wilderness there israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the covenant suddenly comes out strong and loud and clear again. And if we're stepping through, this is now a God is re-establishing, or maybe it's a new covenant. What, what are people thinking here? But it's not with an individual anymore. It's with the whole nation, the whole people seems to be more conditional mm. than the statements to Abraham. Mm, it does, doesn't it? And it does seem to have a, 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 a sort of a an exclusivity to it. It doesn't have the expression that, say, the covenant with Abraham had, that you will be blessed so that you can be a blessing. Um, this seems to almost be a, you'll be mine and you'll be very special. Yeah, although I wonder, Ken, I agree. I feel they it are, the same way. kingdom but... of priests. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if that kingdom of priests bit might mm. be saying something there, because there's this weird phrase thrown in there in, in verse 5. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Mm. Why, why, for all the earth is mine? Although all the earth is mine, you shall be my special, special possessions. And, and, and I know arguing nuance of, of word significance is difficult when we go from translations. But I, I actually think there could be something in the argument that says, the whole earth is mine, God says. And because the whole earth is mine, I am choosing a particular people to be a kingdom of priests, to be my special representatives or messengers or, or agents in order that I can be connected with all of my creation, which is the whole world. Just like the Is that stretching like it too far? No, 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 because all the tribes were Israelites, but, but there was one that was chosen to be the priest. It's, it's a fractal. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, can I, can I just pause here for a moment and just reflect on a devotional 
element of this promise, uh, one that speaks to me. Um, and it is how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, mm. isn't that a wonderful picture of God's care and concern uh, for the people of Israel, the care and the concern that he has for us, that he will carry us on eagle's wings and bring us to himself. Uh, and, and you'll remember that the covenants with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were all, and I will be your God, and I will be with you. Um, and here, not only is he with the Israelites where they were, but he brings them out of where they were and brings them to himself. Uh, so that one of the key aspects of all of these covenants is the immediate and intimate presence of God with his people. And I have to say that the description in Exodus 19, which immediately follows, is a very explicit description of God with his people, and it fascinates me. This, I mean, we could, we could dive into the details of what's going on down there with God descending on the mountain in fire and people sanctifying themselves and not touching the mountain lest you be put to death by being shot through a stone and, and all sorts of things and the cloud and... Well, Luke, I would like to talk about those things. Uh, it's perhaps a bit less, it's about less, a bit less devotional then. But but we were a bit concerned about the the occasion when Abraham killed animals, as a ceremony associated with the covenant. This, this one here, I mean, we don't know that anyone was shot, but <clears throat> if they'd stepped foot on the mountain, not only are they to be killed, but they are they are so defiled that you cannot touch them. You must kill them with arrows or with stones. And that that seems to me, I mean, is 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 this is this an effort to impress upon the people that what's happening is a very serious and significant thing. And but it also seems to impose a huge a a, a difference maybe not in God's regard, but a difference of some type between Moses and the rest of the Israelites of the highest possible magnitude. If they, he climbs the mountain and enters the cloud. If they, if they set a foot on the lower, lower foothills, they are to be, they are to be shot with arrows and stoned immediately. Mm. It reminds me a little of the YouTube videos you see of the Sentinels at the tomb of the unknown soldier in the US. And, you know, somebody puts a hand over the barrier and, they get shouted at. Um, uh, somebody talks, and uh, you know the respectful silence is uh, enforced. Um, there, there seems to be a real difference. Although he does say in verse twenty-four, uh, "You can bring Aaron up with you," hmm. um, uh, but the priests and the other well, people must Aaron not force their way to come the up to the Lord. Yes, he was. Although I don't know if that happened after this story or before. Yeah, I was trying to get the sequence. I, I think that that sort of structure hasn't yet been um, established. This this chapter nineteen is coming just after Moses gets Jethro, his father-in-law's advice, uh, in sort of the beginning of establishing certain organizational structures or or, or, or and, social um, structures. And Jethro's a priest. 
Right. He's the he's the priest of Midian, and Moses accepts guidance from him. And it, uh, we've referred. Did we refer to Melchizedek in the podcast? Mm, we didn't we did. really, did we? Uh, obliquely. We mentioned him twice because he comes up in that in that passage with Abraham, and it's really remarkable. For those of you, of course, who mm. are interested in uh, procedural fairness uh, and natural justice and the legal concepts associated with them. Uh, Exodus 18 and the characteristics of those judges who are uh, to be appointed uh, following Jethro's advice um, uh, is a wonderful description of uh, the uh, concept of natural justice as it's known in the common law world. Um, So go there and have a look at that. Uh, With that little um, tangential note, carry on. Mm. No, well, the, what you're saying, Cam and and Luke, and and this this question about the the harshness, I suppose, of the instructions surrounding their behaviour in the mountain, and and the one of you mentioned the similarity with the cutting animals in half in that quite unusual story with Abraham and the covenant. It it has reminded me of we did we received a message from Carly in Sydney who regularly listens to our podcast while. Um, while well, running early in the morning. So that's that's a, an inspiration, I think, to the rest of us. Um, she was particularly intrigued by our episode a few weeks ago where we had a comment. We were wondering about this, the smell. Remember, after the flood, there's a, God kind of says the, the pleasing smell of the sacrifice is, is sort of inst- part of... of making him excited to make the covenant with Noah. And then then these animals. So Carly's observation was, if you think about their world, which would have been a pretty smelly place, probably a lot more smelly in many unpleasant ways than our modern world, garbage management challenges, animal manure, I mean, you name it. Then take into account that eating meat was expensive and a source of food. Perhaps the smell of a sacrifice would be liked and Ken, your your slightly flippant comment in that episode about God liking the smell of a barbecue, Carly's kind of wondering maybe it's actually not so far from the mark. It could be that animal sacrifice had a pleasant smell, in that sense, as well as be, as well as in the sense of of obedience and dedication to God and and so on. And well, look, why I'm bringing that in is because I'm thinking we do need to be careful, don't we, to be a, alert to where our sensibilities and our culture. Are, are causing us to be to maybe be seeing the wrong end of the stick. We're looking at this. We come from a society that is based around individual liberties um, and all of these things. And we're reading this stuff about if you touch the mountain, you'll be shot through. And and we're I don't know. I'm hearing in your voice. I'm feeling in my own self a kind of reaction against this and thinking, but wow, that's not right. That's not fair. And I'm I'm taking the caution, I suppose, to remind myself that it's it's not quite fair for me to evaluate it on my terms well you know i was i was uh before i get onto that comment like getting uh, just a, a an addition to is it carly's comments mm. uh the sacrifices the people ate portions in many of the sacrifices they ate portions of the animal that was sacrificed uh and um there is a fascinating passage i need to look up the reference for this because um it's the one about tithe can mm. that i think we were talking about at church the other day uh the one what, what do you do if you can't bring a, you, you, an offering of a certain yeah, time you, well you throw a party if you can't if you're not there if you can't get there 
there is a, and perhaps our readers, there'll be readers Clancy would know, Locke, but there's there's one of the sacrifices that's meant to be done at the temple. But if you can't get there, then you are not to keep the animal alive. You're to kill the animal and share it with heaps of, have a big party. Right. Um, right. Well, that that <clears throat> certainly would lead to positive associations with the aroma. Yeah. That, that are perhaps foreign slightly to to us in modern Australia. Of course, here we've got yeah. a negative and, association. Uh, uh, stoning and being shot through mm. with an arrow. <laughs> well, it doesn't. This idea, this idea of if you if you step on the mountain, you're going to get shot through, doesn't seem the part that makes us uncomfortable. It's not just an inconsistency between our worldview and this passage. It, you know, you think of passages in the New Testament. Let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And mm. That's the same God who's saying here that if you step a foot on the mountain, you're going to get shot through. Uh, so there, there's an internal inconsistency here. Think of the story of Jacob. He sleeps one night with his head on a rock and has a, a dream of God's tangible presence. So he establishes an altar there saying, this is a holy place. It's a holy place that I, that I am recognizing as such because I have been here and experienced it. And later in his life, the night before he meets his brother Esau after many years, he literally wrestles with God. He gets his name changed to Israel in recognition of the fact that he's been wrestling with God. He's been grappling with holy presence. And God has not delivered such terrible punishment as, as is being described here. So there is something that is different. And it's connected, obviously, to the fact that God is now dealing with a nation. And a nation of slaves, a nation who have been in Egypt for generations do you think there's some idea here that God is attempting to re-establish his identity? This this threat of punishment for touching the mountain might be a bit related, Ken, to him saying, I'm using a new name that I wasn't using before. This is the first time I'm using this name. I am, I am in my self-revelatory introduction at the moment. I'm wanting you to understand who I am. And part of that is you need, you need to see me as pretty big and pretty powerful and and i'm wanting you to get that message is it is it also uh is it also an perhaps an element of god uh speaking to them in in a language they understand and let me qualify that a little bit if i want to appear like i have authority then i wear a fluorescent vest really there's, <laughs> there's no intrinsic meaning to there's no intrinsic meaning to that. Oh, if I was ever to commit a crime, Luke, I would do it in a fluorescent vest with witches' hats out. Um, because <laughs> everyone it makes it look like you're entitled to do what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I was at I was setting up an event for school the other day at Agfest, which is a big, uh, like, rural show in Tassie. It's very big. And during the setup phase, it was mandated that everyone had to wear a, a high vis vest. And I did think, as I was surrounded by high vis vest people, that that surely the quickest way to stand out in this crowd would have been to take the vest off. Um, so, but but there isn't actually any intrinsic meaning, like like wearing the high vis vest doesn't doesn't make you more powerful. It doesn't make you more trustworthy. It doesn't. There's nothing intrinsic in the thing at all. It's it's a bit of a vacuous thing. Except that there is this cultural expectation. That when you are in a position where you're telling people what to do, the policeman doing random breath testing, or, or or a pilot on the apron of an airport, or now you're talking, you know, that you wear a 
Yeah, that you wear a high-vis vest. It's entirely, the only meaning in it is just in the minds of the, collective minds of the people. So what happens if the if the people say, right, we've got a new God, we've got to follow this God. I hope he's big. Um, you know, I hope he's, you know, powerful and, you know, what's he like? And, you know, I hope, I hope there's like fire and thunder and crazy stuff. And and so God says, well, yeah, if you set foot on this mountain, you're going to get shot through. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a God. That's a that's a real yeah. good God. Well, it's an interesting point because I believe in in this in this sequence of events, there's no indication that any of the Israelites did step on the mountain and had to be shot through with arrows and or stoned to death. That, yeah. In fact, in I've just I've just turned over Exodus 19 verse 20 and 21. So in verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And what's the first thing God does? Go down. <laughs> he says, "Go down. Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish." There's a lot of going also, up and going priests, down. And then, <laughs> and then Moses, the funny thing is then Moses reminds God, he says, well, hang on, the people cannot come up the mountain because you yourself warned us saying, don't come up the mountain. <laughs> and God says, no, 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 go down and anyway. And bring Aaron up with you. <laughs> There's so much about that sequence of events that has fascinating, weird little details in it. Like, for example, God says yeah. to Moses... Yeah. Well, he says to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to Yahweh to gaze and many of them perish. Not all, many. So some of them wouldn't Mm, perish, mm. God says. Why? And there's also the suggestion, well, maybe maybe they were the ones who don't break through. Um, And then there's also an expectation. Moses, Moses seems to think that God has forgotten and this isn't—he hasn't forgotten the covenant from four hundred years ago. He's forgotten what he just said. He's forgotten. No, he's like, no, just remember, it was just yesterday, God. It was just yesterday. You said build a barrier. We did it. We built the yeah, barrier. Yeah, told us. But remember, to God, yesterday is like a thousand it's, years, it's, so you can uh, forgive him a little. It's developing a tolerance to hypoxia. You know, it's it's like, like you've got to go up to Everest Base Camp and stay there for a while, then you go back down, then you go back up again, and then you <laughs> then you advance a bit further up, and you so it's. It's, it's very practical mm. advice. I do have one observation here to make. The, the, we're talking Exodus 19, and famously, the next chapter, Exodus 20, is where one one um, version of the Ten Commandments is recorded in our Bible. And it's reminded me that when we are discussing the word covenant, I think, for me, a lot in the past, I've I've just felt like the word covenant is connected to the idea of the plan of salvation. And, and I don't know whether that's because I've been taught that or because I think of the word covenant connected to the new covenant and the new covenant sort of being described in terms of God's new way of, of outlining the plan of salvation. But what is really coming home to me at this point, about halfway through this, this quarter, talking about covenant, is the covenants we've looked at so far have not in and of themselves been directly related to the grand plan of salvation. The covenant with Noah was a salvific covenant in the sense that God's promising not to destroy in that way again. The covenant with Abram at the calling and through his life seems more like a missional covenant than a salvation covenant. It's more like God saying, hey, here's a deal. I want you to partner with me in my plan of salvation. But it doesn't seem quite so much as if it is outlining a vehicle for that plan of salvation. And... Can I add a, a comment from 
uh, a friend here, Locke, uh, who, uh, Christian, who said, she said, uh, we have a different mindset. So the, the, the mindset we have uh, from the Greeks uh, is the famous statement, you know, I think, therefore I am. Mm. And uh, the ancient Hebrews, if they had formed a, a statement of a similar type, would have said, in her opinion, I do, therefore I am. So there's, there's a, this idea of eternal salvation relies on an abstract statement of what are you? It's all about being. What are you at your core? Are you a sinner? Are you saved? And there's, there needs to be some, some transformation in what you are. But the Old Testament is not, there's no, there's not, it's not, there's no commentary made of that sort. It, it doesn't say in such and such was a sinner. Um, mm. It just says they did this and then they did this and then they did this. And so, um, and this Christ even refers to this a bit. He says, you know, a tree is known by its fruit. Mm. Uh, so, and, and this is, this is also, you know, perhaps what James is getting at. What, do, what are you talking about? You believe you have faith. Well, show me your faith. Yeah, well, even so, Paul Paul is on even on the same page. Uh, he says, your, your, "Your life is now in Christ." In Colossians three, uh, so put off these things: rage and malice, and uh, those things, yeah. and put on these other things. Uh, uh, you know, because you're holy and beloved, you know, chosen. Uh, yeah. Now live this way: compassion, yeah. kind, um, and. And in Hebrews it says Abraham was considered righteous, and it was it was because he God said do something and he did it. And just referring back to one of the places as you're saying that, Cam, I'm thinking of the phrase righteous. Um, in that one of the troubling episodes in the story of Judah, Joseph's brother, Tamar says, "No, Judah says to Tamar, you have you are more righteous than I, not as a statement of." abstracted state of person but on the basis of actions that have been taken that have been done it's what yeah. you have done is more righteous than what i have done is is the way it's said so yeah it is very much about the the verbs yeah and 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 to highlight you know perhaps the potential silliness uh there's a great line in uh the ascent of rum doodle a book that everyone must read um and the Scent of Rum Doodle is a is a parody of the Victorian era explorer, and these these people are out to climb Rum Doodle, which is the highest mountain. Just, in the just world. a minute, I've got my bingo card. Is this C.S. Lewis or is this Adrian Plath? Neither. No, no, <laughs> no. There's something new. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's a fascinating story of the author. Uh, we'll talk about it later. Come go on. Yeah, he he. These the everyone on the expedition, all the Europeans on the expedition, are are incompetent. Absolutely. The doctor's the only one who falls sick. The root finder's the only one who gets lost. The, the, they're, they're all massively incompetent. If it wasn't for the porters keeping them on the straight and narrow, they'd, they'd have no chance of getting anywhere near the mountain. They end up climbing the wrong mountain. And, um, and, but at the same time, they're amazingly condescending towards the porters with all these obviously caricature of, of colonial attitudes. It's, it's, done, it's done very well. It really rips to shreds um, you know, the genre. And mm-hmm. um, but there's a great line where the leader of the expedition, who's who's can't see something right in front of his face, <clears throat> but there's one they've just gotten out of a crevasse, and um, he said, "I uh, 
I sent the expedition on ahead so that I could uh, stay and meditate on the responsibilities of leadership. And so I took up the rear. <laughs> that, that is a book that I think of, of, of any book I have ever read has the greatest density of hilarious lines. It's, it's so packed yes. with... Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really good. But, you know, as a, as a paradox between... He was, he, was, he was saying, I must be a good leader and I will think about what I am. Mm. I am a good leader. You know, but I'm going to sit at the back and think about it because that will help. That will give me peace and quiet to think. Yeah, this attitude is not confined to to fictional parodies, Cam. You yeah. think about the number of parents who, in their anxiety to be better parents, have neglected their children while reading how to be better parenting books. Too busy to spend yeah. time with your child. Yeah. I'm reading a parenting book. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And obviously, you know the. There's a lot of complexity there, but you, you can see the same sort of attitude come out again and again and again yeah. um, in in ourselves. Yeah. So I, I forgot to lock the comment that that turned us in this direction, but it was it was a comment about about the eternal plan of salvation. That's what it was. Yeah. I mean, and- I'm I'm just commenting that the word covenant. We, we're now halfway through the quarter, and we probably need to wrap up this episode reasonably soon. And I'm I'm just observing that the word covenant is has taken on more life for me than it had. And I'm reflecting that that it seems that it used to be kind of almost synonymous with plan of salvation. So you had the, the Old Testament covenant, which was the sacrificial system, which as outlined is a kind of mechanism of salvation. And we then we then say, ah, but it wasn't in and of itself. It was really a a an anticipation of the true vehicle of salvation in Jesus who fulfills the sacrificial system and there's nothing wrong with that picture that's great but what I'm saying is that the word covenant we've now picked it up in Abraham's story in Noah's story we're now seeing it here in Moses's story and and even here it's it's connected to the land and the and the you know I'm going to give you the land that I promised your ancestors um more so than some grand, this is how I'm going to solve the sin well, problem in the I world. Think the initial thought in response to that is that a thing can be two things at once. And obviously we have, we have, I mean, not obviously, I suppose, but the Seventh-day Adventist approach to covenant emphasizes the messianic element in, in everything, which I, I think there is mm. reasonable scriptural justification to, to perceive that element as being something that exists, when when you look at the sort of the grand arc of the Bible, and and the context that all of these things we've been reading about fits in, nearly done. Even while these things may have a messianic element to them, it doesn't detract from their individual uniqueness. Because what we've lo- every covenant that we've looked at is very unique in its details, in its meaning, mm. in the way it's communicated, in its context, <clears throat> in its scope, they are all different. And if indeed they are all, all messianic, then I they think did. that speaks um, to the broadness and comprehensiveness of the plan of salvation, which is an interesting element. But it also speaks mm. to the, 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 the different ways that God can, can interact with people. Mm. There's, there's also an element here where it, these covenants involved things for them to do, and some of them seemed a bit arbitrary. Uh, 
You leave your father's household and I will be your God and you'll be, I'll turn you into a great nation. Now, maybe there's some rationale behind that. Maybe it's to just, so Abraham is distanced from an environment, perhaps where his father had his own, own gods of the household and God said, go somewhere else because I will be your God. Maybe there's some element to it. Uh, but, you know, go here. And should I go down to Egypt, says Isaac. And God says, no, don't go down to Egypt, even though there's a, a, a plague on, um, not a plague, a famine on, um, stay here, I'll be your God, and he reiterates the covenant. And there, there's some element to its arbitrary. You know, I know that there are deep spiritual truths, but sometimes there's just pragmatic things. Like maybe if God was to make a covenant with one of us, it might be, um, Cameron, go leave your household on Tuesday evenings and go 10-pin bowling. And if you do this, I will be your God, and you will be mine. And I might not see any sort of, I mean, that would sound really sort of prosaic and practical, uh, but you maybe there's some purpose behind it. And all right, well, if, if God said I'll do it, well, off, off I'll go and do it. Like, uh, do we focus, I guess what I'm saying, is do we lose something by always looking for a deep, eternal, long, distant or significant <clears throat> in some other realm, you know, meaning of what God wants us to do? Are there just pragmatic things that God wants us to do, uh, that that he wants us to focus more on. If I've shared this previously, then delete it. But I think I would say that the story of Abraham, God used in a very direct way uh, to speak to me about significant life decisions that I had to make uh, way back in 2004. Um, about whether I would stay as a partner in a law firm or strike out as an independent barrister. And I felt compelled uh, one morning at 3am to get up and read the story of Abraham and read it as if it was speaking to me in my situation. Um, And it was a very powerful experience that had no real significance beyond the fact that it was speaking to me about my particular life circumstances and decisions to be made then had nothing to do with mm. the great plan of salvation, you know, viewed in terms of atonement and the like, except that that plan of salvation does involve an interactive life with God mm. now. Um, so, uh, and, and I think that's an important part to see in all of these stories is that these are stories of God's interaction with these people in their lives, in their circumstances, and that that's what he does with us now. Absolutely. I think we should finish there, Cam. Right. Well, we'll have to hold our, our, any following comments to our, to our after-recording discussion. And we should encourage any listeners to to find communities yes. to have after listening conversations as well. What a great idea! Yes, and and to send and to send comments or questions through to us, and so we can incorporate mm-hmm. them in in future discussions. We're really interested in your thoughts. You can send them to Sabbath School from Home at gmail dot com, and uh, we're glad that you listen to the podcast. And we pray and hope that uh, it provides good food for thought. And we'd encourage you to share it with anyone that you feel might benefit. And join us again next week as we continue this very fascinating exploration of God's interaction with people. So uh, thank you for joining us. We'll, uh, we'll speak to you via the podcast next week. Goodbye.
Thank you.